0: What's going on, folks? It's your boy again, Dr. Sean Thomas here back in the building. I just want to remind you that we are doing a special event for Black History Month. We are doing the BMT for BLM. Be more today for Black Lives Matter. We have joined with the ASALH, the Association for the Study of African American Life and History. Established in 1915, they are the founders of Black History Month. And for the month of February, we're doing a fundraiser run from February 1st to February 28th. Every single day you can run a four-mile run with us virtually or in person on February 21st. $10 will go directly towards the ASALH to continue to help them educate us about our history, about our family, and about our culture. Uh, you can also donate more if you don't want to do the race at all or donate more if you are running the race. But from February 1st until the 28th, we'll be doing this fundraiser run for them, running together virtually or in person in Brooklyn on the 21st cbmoretoday.com for more details and sign up today thank you so much for joining us with black history month and let's continue to be great our ancestors are great our history is great let's continue to share that with the rest of the world peace
1: think of the difference between an iphone video and a sundance film camera audio versus a studio track a novice or someone with experience Sure, each has their place, but which will have maximum impact? Summer Shower Productions, a black-owned, woman-owned production company built to create valuable and inspirational content for you. Whether it's a promotional video, a short film, interviews, event photography, or utilizing our extensive editing and post-production tools to take your already captured content to the next level. We always bring creativity, integrity, and passion to every project we produce. So consider some shower productions for your next project. Let's build something great together.
0: It's your boy again back in the building. Dr. Sean Thomas here with episode 38 of the Be More Today show. We are back, we are back, we are back in the building. And it's Black History Month, folks. You know, we're doing this big. I told you we're doing this yes, big. Sir. And we're great on some great people today. Uh, for those of you who have been following us, Be More Today is a movement we've done everywhere Facebook, Instagram. And we continue to put our podcasts out there the, the book, my book, our music, everything has to be YouTube. Base is on there, so we're pushing forward, giving you new content, more stuff every single day. So thank you for your support. People who have been on the podcast and giving us love all through this year and last year, thank you so much for your support. We are now in 32 countries, so the b today is spreading uh, widely, and we're super excited for the love and support. And our sponsors who continue to give to us, thank you so much for just continuing to show us your love. We appreciate it. Just want to remind everybody that we're still doing our BMT for BLM Four Mile Run, February twenty first. Uh, it's a virtual run, that can be done anywhere. But we are going to gather if people want to gather on twenty first. And the proceeds from the run are going to the ASALH. They are actually the founders of Black History Month. So the race is thirty dollars, but ten dollars of your race donation um, goes directly towards them. We're trying to raise thousand dollars this month uh, for their cause. So if you do want to get into the race, by all means, go onto our website, you And sign up for a virtual four-mile run. Uh, You can join us on Strava for that. Or if you want to join us in person, we will be in Brooklyn on the 21st doing a socially distance run uh, in honor of those who have come before us and for ASALH. Uh, My quotation for today is simple as always. Won't it be wonderful when Black history and Native American history and Jewish history and all of U.S. history is taught for one book? Just U.S. History by Maya Angelou. Folks, my guest for today is someone who embodies that. He uh, is a historian of all traits. And I had to make sure I brought someone on the show who was going to give us some history today because we need that. You know, we talk about motivation every single week and um, we talk about the the bonds that uh, make us alike and also different. But during Black History Month, I thought it would be really important to bring on someone who could really just talk about what's happening now and bring it to a way that uh, is palatable, um, palatable for us to actually recognize and understand. And my guest for today is none other than the infamous and amazing Albert Cook. Now, Mr. Cook has been a member of the Social Studies Department at New Pulse High School for 23 years, where he currently teaches world history, AP American history, and Black history. Mr. Cook is also an instructor in the Urban Education Initiative at Bastyr College, where he's co-taught classes on the legacy of Dr. King, the history of black border disenfranchisement, and the history and legacy of mass incarceration. He's lectured throughout the region on issues surrounding the history of African cultures and the development of race and racism in North America. Now, Albert Cook is a history teacher for Newport Central High School, our central school district, and he covered a number of topics um, from the mythology of uh, biology of race, the etymology and historical function of the N-word and the ancient to late medieval African kingdoms empires over the course of a 10 uh, week on every single Tuesday from November to January on a radio show based in Kingston. And I heard some of these things. I heard actually a number of those shows. And I was super impressed. I said, in hearing these things, I have to have them on the show. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, pets included, please welcome to the stage my friend, my elder, my brother, uh, (laughs) my mother, my man, Albert, Albert Cook. Wow.
2: I'm all right, Doc. I'm all right, Doctor. I'm very appreciative of that uh illustrious uh introduction. Um I guess I have to create a show and introduce you because you know you are you are you're quite the impressive figure, but I'm on your show today, so I thank you for that.
0: I appreciate you coming on. I know it's early, but we're doing this and uh you know, you and I have a history that goes back way back actually when um we we are in the same church area, so we've done a number of church things together. Uh when I was a youth leader at a church, you came and did my youth week of prayer for me. And I actually still have the well CDs, DVDs, the recordings um, of every single night that you preached at our church. Um wow. I used to do those things. And uh I just I've always seen you as a prolific speaker, um, a prolific teacher, right? And as someone who wasn't always um excited about learning history because the history that I learned in school was not really about us ever. Mm -hmm. Um, Seeing you and hearing you talk about and show your passion for history uh, and for the things that we've seen in our past and how it applies to the present, it inspired me to really want to get more and and delve more into learning about cultures and the historical factors that that make us who we are. So I had to have you on the show. I appreciate all you've done and continue to do in the Hudson Valley and welcome to the New More Today Show. Uh,
2: thank you so much. I'm really glad to hear that because uh, you're not alone. I, I would say in my experience teaching, about 30% of my students come into the classroom uh, naturally excited about learning history. And I think there are a couple of reasons, um, for, especially with for Black youth. Uh, you, the reason that you pinpointed is exactly true. Um, you know, we, we are often disenfranchised in so many different ways. One of them psychologically and emotionally is by never hearing that we're connected to the human narrative and that it causes it causes us to be unmoored in our in our psychology in our social relationships. We don't feel connected to to the human story. And that's that psychologically is very damaging. I know people that um, control curricula around this country don't like to think about the fact that they're destroying young people while they're inspiring and building other young people um, as a parallel to what was done with slavery. I mean, slavery was exactly that with our bodies, but still um, intellectually, psychologically, it's being done for young black children in most public school uh, uh, experiences around this country where the absence of identity in the history is like exploiting the the, the mind because what it does is it prepares you to do servant jobs you know, which is exactly what slavery was supposed to do. So mm-hmm. if you don't get an education that makes you feel connected to the community, um, often kids disengage, especially with history, but sometimes they disengage totally with school because history is the narrative about life and life. It sometimes it, it hits students that way and they disengage and, 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 and they don't really do as well as they could while other students get to identify in various points you know whether they have irish history they'll get they'll get a little bit of that if they have anglo uh, ancestry they'll get a little bit of that and and if you're a western european descendant person your identity is affirmed you know you're a strong colonizer and the colonizing story is told in such a, a idyllic way um to make it seem as if it isn't what it was which was brutal and uh, uh, uh barbaric in many ways, but everybody else who interacts with the colonizer is the is the brute and the barbarian. And so it's a psychological game that is played to the harm of black mm. and brown minds and to the benefit of 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 Western European descendant people. And so mm. it it's a sad, it's a sad testimony. What you what you told me I know to be true experientially as well.
0: Mm, mm, that's powerful. Now I, I I know that you are a history teacher. I know you've been teaching for the longest time. Actually, you teach New Newport High School. I I grew up in Wallkill, so you're right down the street from me, um, which is funny. <laughs> yeah. um, what's your educational background and and what led you to want to teach history?
2: Yeah, I, I have a, um, a bachelor's of uh, history um, and secondary education from Atlantic Union College, which is a parochial school uh, in the New England area. It's now sadly closed, but. Um, I graduated from there in 1995, and then I went to SUNY New Paltz, right here in New York State, um, for my Master's of Science in Teaching History, and uh, then yeah, educationally that's that's my educational background. Yeah, um, but as far as what led me to be a teacher, um, you know, I didn't I didn't intend to be a teacher. I had so many different ideas. I went to school thinking originally I was going to be a pastor, which of course requires teaching. Um, then I thought I was going to be a lawyer, which, uh, is somewhat related. You know, uh, these are still interests of mine. I'm still very spiritually, uh, driven and still, uh, I advise a mock trial team at my school. So I kind of like feed, feed that habit a little bit with that. Um, but, uh, my, my advisor in undergrad He asked me, you know, you don't have a minor. You need a minor to get this bachelor's. And he kept, you know, I thought it was annoying, but he kept persisting, which I'm very glad he did uh, for me to pick up a minor. And I picked up the education minor actually just to get him to stop calling me and emailing me and and things like that. Uh, And uh, once I got into the classroom, I was shocked by the electricity that started flowing through my mind and the exhilaration of the experience. And fortunately at that time, when I got home, um, my old high school had a sick leave replacement need that I filled. My mother probably had something to do with informing the principal about that. And, <laughs> and then um, I got a call when that year was up from the local uh, principals in the area because the principal of that high school said, we're letting this kid go, but we don't really want to. You should call him. And I got a call, and I got a call from New High School. I'd interviewed there, and I've been there for 23 years.
0: Mm, that's crazy. Yeah, yeah, I love it. I mean, sometimes that just works out that way, right? Um, that's right. And there's such an interesting link between pastors who want to be lawyers and lawyers who want to be teachers. So it, it just makes sense that you're in there still, because you're still doing your various things and various, various endeavors. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I was reading your bio, and I, I, I was so blown away, as always, at what you're doing especially in the Kingston area. I know you spoke at a rally that happened last year, and I actually saw pictures from that on Facebook. Um, But I also read in your bio about the Urban Education Initiative. What exactly is that? What's your role in that initiative?
2: Yeah, the Dyson Foundation um, is a philanthropic uh, group that likes to fund um, educational initiatives, mostly for poor, disenfranchised uh, peoples in the country. They, They have a grant that they work with Vassar College with in the summertime where they get uh, students that are first-time college, first-generation college attendees that will be rising sophomores and juniors in high school. Um, They like to target immigrant families. They like to target uh, black families, um, kids of color. And what they do is they have a cadre of professors and teachers that will team up to give them um, the college experience on the campus in the summertime for two weeks. So we create collegiate level courses. Uh, we lecture in a college uh, uh, hall and we you know we make the rigor. We choose the books at the same level that we would choose if we were teaching a college course. Um, and they stay on campus for those two weeks and they go to, to the cafe and they go, uh, you know, they have their socializing and then they have their time in the library and they, they're supposed to experience it so they can get the confidence to know um, even though my parents didn't go to school, to college, um, I can do this. And, uh, you know, that's that's what I've been doing for the last, I think, uh, seven, seven summers until COVID.
0: Mm-hmm. I love that kind of stuff. I love the giving back. I love the exposure. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I was exposed to a number of programs that were kind of like that growing up as well. So I think anyone who has an opportunity to do those things, uh, it just sets them up for success in the future. And um, I know you spoke about a number of things on your episodes. Again, there were 10 episodes you did for the Kingston Radio Show. And um, they were fantastic. They are phenomenal. Um, yeah, I think I'm, I'm just putting it out there. I think you should have probably have
1: your own podcast, to be honest, um, just to share the information that you've been sharing. But
0: <laughs> I did want to get some of your thoughts on some of the shows. And, and, and I know we don't have all the time in the world to go through every single episode. But some of the topics you talked about were so uh, pointing it to where we are as a people now, what we're experiencing and seeing now, where we've been, and, and maybe even where we're going. Um, so, you spoke about the story of the, of the Capitol, and you kind of shared your thoughts on that, and of course, to anger and, and the uh, curiosity that comes with, with that from both angles. Um, but, what are your thoughts on, with the Capitol in mind, the current racial temperature? in America, post the election, new administration, coming where we're coming from now and going into now this 2021, um, people are still, you know, things are still happening, right? There's still things on the news happening every single day, even with the Black Lives Matter movement and all that we've come from and then going towards. What are your current thoughts on the temperature that's happening right now in, in the U.S. in terms of race relations?
2: Well, you know, it's obviously... Um been been very hot lately and um but what i'd like to say um is that the technology that we have that every person has in their pocket now is really not being given the attention that it deserves in creating the current climate as far as white people understanding suddenly in their mind what it's like to be black in america you know None of the things, the police brutality, the um, poor public education around the country for black folk, the economic disenfranchisement, the voting, the voting uh, hoops and and difficulties that black folk have to face every single time that there's a major election, the gerrymandering, all these things that are suddenly on the white fragility and they're suddenly on the lips of of, um, progressive white America. Has been the normal experience of Black folk, especially if you live in a Black community or a Black poor community. That's been the normal experience of Black folk since we've been here. And the cell phone and videotaping all these things is the only thing that's new. So I think the racial temperature is just um, more at the surface, but it's not different, and it's not the worst that it's ever been in the United States. I mean, um, just you know, it's it's amazing to me how how powerfully American historians have changed the narrative about what really happened in in the 1950s and sixties, because the people who were there are still alive, you know, but they killed so many leaders and they depend on us not really um, reading um, our own history, our own voices about that time period. So the autobiographies that came out of that time, you um, you know, a lot of times in schools, These are not the popular autobiographies that are assigned to kids to read, you know, so Autobiography of Malcolm X by Alex Haley, you know, uh, Martin has an autobiography, Uh, figures that are not as well known or not promoted, like Fannie Lou Hamer, who's my favorite person from that time period, you know, um, Stokely Carmichael's story is brilliant and amazing, the organization of the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, which is SNCC. That's the group that actually organized the March on Washington in 1963. Most kids, white and black, don't know the fact that that was a multidisciplinary, multiracial, uh, collegiate, young people-driven organization that organized that March on Washington where Dr. King did this famous speech you know, and they were just extraordinary. Three of them were shot and killed down South after they went down to do voter drives. Uh, they were just as heroic as some of these other folks. Our story is diverse. The strategies were diverse. Young people were at the front lines almost all the time. Uh, there were Black uh, colleges that um, had National Guard shoot them up at the same time that Kent State happened in, in May. And everybody knows Kent State, but 16 people were shot at in, in, in uh, more... Um, uh, Morgan State uh, University, you know, so the, these things, um, it's just extraordinary that the narrative can be controlled and switched so quickly. And uh, unfortunately, you know, um, I, my, I have my opinions about what has happened within in the Black community. that has been destructive as well. And, you know, I'm, I'm, both you and I are kind of representative of what happened when, when in the 1960s, you know, a lot was done post 1960s to uh, create opportunities for Blacks to get better education and to get enter into the workforce as professionals, etc. And what a lot of our, our, our immediate ancestors did, not to blame them, but I'm just looking at what happened and the effects, is the talented 10th that W.E.B. Du Bois talks about in his book, The Souls of Black Folk and other writings, uh, left Black communities and we left to live in white communities. And we are in urban, uh, we're in uh, places where black folks can't really afford, we're in rural areas, we're in suburban areas, and we go to white schools and our money and our talents get in reinvested in those areas. And what's good for the individual families, um, which is new opportunities and, and better education because the schools are better where white white kids are, is, is not good for black communities as a whole. And a lot of leadership is gone, you know what I mean? And so I think that, you know, uh, we need to as a generation think seriously about what, what we're going to do about that. Charles Blow has a great article in the uh, New York Times called, um, I think the re-migration of black folk. I'll send you the link. But he's encouraging that Black communities re-migrate. He was like, Atlanta needs to be the spot. And he's using it as an example because of the recent political upheaval that Black voters have created in this country. I mean, it's so extraordinary. Biden was picked by Black folks because the other candidates were not, they were trouncing Biden. And Black people in South Carolina were like, no. We're not trying to experiment. We don't have the time to do that. This person can beat Trump. We're putting him in office, even though black folk didn't necessarily uh, want the agenda that they know Joe Biden will bring. They're not interested in any more Trump. And it turned the turn the entire tide. Black votes in almost every country. I mean, every state after that turned the turned the tide um, in a different direction. And so. You know, I think I think this generation, our generation, the generation that comes after us, we have a lot to think about and we have a lot to do with our children. You know, about how
0: they conceive or understand what it means to be black in America. Yeah, no, that, that that's all that's all accurate. And I, you know, as a your kids are older than mine, clearly, um, but my daughter is going to be six, and she's already talking about the difference between skin color, her her classmates versus her skin color, and. My skin color versus mommy's skin color, and you know what what she is. So, yeah, it, it again, we're gonna be in this this time where we have some decisions to make in terms of what we show our kids. Um, history has repeated itself in various ways, so it's good for us to make sure that we can take this to the next level. And yeah, I, I agree with you on on the educational level. You know, I, I'm the product of all um, white schools um, mm-hmm. the, of of the richest and smartest if you will as the world looks at it right um ivy league etc and yeah you know i i I, sometimes i even feel myself that i want to be more involved in giving back and that's why i do the things that i do community wise um because i know i've been given a lot i know that you've been given a lot and um it 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 is poignant for us to recognize that we have to give back to allocate our monies to like own businesses and those kind of things because that if we don't think about it continuously. Yeah. Then we'll just fall into whatever place we're going to be in housewise, educationally professionally, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. and I actually to my next question for you, cause I know you teach new pulse and, you know, as I know, new pulse, new pulse is, is very, uh, Caucasian in nature. Um, yeah. uh, so is wallkill where my mom lives and where I grew up. Um, and I know the students as you talked about in your, in your, in your show, um, are mostly Caucasian. Um, I know you live in Kingston. Uh, which based on what Kingston is and where you can be um, has more people of color, more, more minorities, depending on what, what sect you're living in or, or talking about. Um, so how do you, as an educator, um, given the history that we have given the books that's, that schools uh, and resources that schools have to give their students, how do you share history that is factual um, and share the stories of others who are not always in the books to your students that are, of certain uh, race backgrounds,
2: yeah, that's a great that's a great question. At first, uh, um, as a young teacher, untenured teacher, um, very carefully, <laughs> you know, very carefully. But as I've grown, you know, you you have to establish a reputation, you have to establish a credibility, um, even more than your colleagues when you're black. Um, but once once I did that. Um, those textbooks and materials become fodder for teaching excellent lessons. For example, I have a world history textbook that t- has two chapters on Greece and Rome. So Greece is in one full chapter, which has four sections, and Rome is in another full chapter that's four sections. Actually, it's three chapters because there's one more Roman uh, chapter after the, the introduction to Rome of uh, four sections of that, you know, the Republic and then the Empire. And, you know, there are so many cool stories that I tell the students and I get them really engaged in it. And then we get to the African section, and there are 13 African kingdoms in one chapter. And so I have them do an analysis of that, like, what, what's happening here? What does it cause you to think when there's 13 African kingdoms covered in, and they say immediately, quite quickly, they didn't do anything? And I was like, exactly. Right? Then I teach them. Then I teach them. And I show them what Ghana, Mali, Shanghai, Aksum, the Great Zimbabwe, uh, the Kushites, you know, I, teach, I give them uh, Nubians, I give them all this African history. And they're like, what is that? You know, I mean, Black people you know, we call them Black people now. African people um, uh, historically have been amongst the greatest people on this planet from the beginning, from the beginning. This 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 uh, race construction that's happened in the Americas has been devastating. That's the one, one devastating number one and devastating number two is the colonization of Africa um, in the 1800s by the Europeans. They, they've been two very devastating um impacts on African people. But prior to that, you know, the story of the African continent is extraordinary. And when I give them taste of it, you know, I can only give them taste of it because the curriculum doesn't allow me to stay too long. They are blown away. And then I ask them questions like, what do you think this curriculum is preparing you to think about people of color in your community and around the world historically? What's happening to your mind? And do you think it's fair that as children that you're being trained to think you're being objective, but you're being raised in a white supremacist ideology without hating anybody? What do you think that, you know, I do I do have those challenging uh, times and questions in my classroom. And, um, you know, you would think that uh, kids would resist that kind of education. But the first, it's the engagement that you do, the timing of the lessons, you know, at first they're shocked. And in that space of opening that you have, and you can talk very honestly, and they don't like it. They don't like it. They're pretty upset and embarrassed by it, you know, and I, the, my black history classes get packed out with white kids, 30 kids, you know, there, I'm always telling them the guidance counselors that I can't fit any more kids in the class. So it's been uh, interesting and uh, a- inspiring and a energizing experience.
0: Mm. Personal question for you. And I know you, you teach in New Pulse and you mentioned that most of your, your students are of a certain ethnicity. Do you feel like You have more of an impact in that classroom or would you have more of an impact in a black room? Yeah.
2: Well, um, you know, I'm there for a bunch of reasons. Uh, Number one, I would say there are about it's about five percent black at that school and black kids almost never have a black teacher. And especially in a community like that, that's how it was for me. And I'm sure it was like that for you growing up in the Hudson Valley. And I'm there for those kids uh, to see that um, you can have a black teacher and all the stereotypes that people tell you about black folks can be broken in looking and thinking about one person. And I feel like that's an important thing for kids to see and understand. The other thing is that most white kids never see a black person that breaks the stereotypes and it's important for that to happen too. So I'm, I'm happy with the role that I play at that school in in those two ways, but also, you know, I'm, I'm about eight years away from retirement, which is amazing for me. I can't believe how quickly it went. I started very young, 22, 23 year old. So I have plans post um, New Paltz that involve an academy um that I want to start that will be targeted specifically at at, at uh black kids and especially wow. poor black kids wow. in, in Kingston. Yeah.
0: That's very exciting. Not no, not surprising at all, but very exciting that the academy is on your mind. And um yeah I, I was asking because I you know I think about the schools that I went to and my brothers didn't go to the schools that I went to they went to other schools that were um y- we're just different, right? Um, and in our educational world, we're vast, were, were but I do think it is, um, it's great to have someone who looks like you teaching. Um, like you said, it's also great to have someone who doesn't look like you showing you a different perspective. And I think your impact can be, you know, can be felt on both, on both sides, um, especially looking at the, um, the kids that you're teaching right now. I mean, I think that that really, sets the standard for their future um, and you can really debunk stereotypes and debunk things that were probably taught at home at an earlier age that would really have an impact now, because at some point in time, you know, as we get older, it's, it's hard to break those, those foundational uh, biases and those foundational messages that are taught to us as, as children. So I yeah. think that the place you're at now is, is a very good um, place to be. I that. Um, and on the, and on that note, I'm curious, because even in, in your episode, you talked about um, the N-word. Yeah. And, you know, I know for me, I don't use the N-word. and um, But, you know, people of color do use the N-word in various contexts, talking about music and even just relationally talking to each other um, in friendly terms. And um, depending on the person... Uh, If they're not of, of, you know, minority status, they also use the N-word, sometimes uh, in friendly terms and sometimes not. What are your thoughts on how you educate um, the the students that you have today and this generation uh, on the history of the N-word and why we should or should not be using it?
2: Yeah, uh, I'd love for people to check it out on RadioKingston.org. Jimmy Buff Loves You is where you can find the episode. It's episode number four of a series of 10 Uh, on the N-word, so it could give you a lot more um, depth than I can give you right now on the etymology and history development of the word. Um, But that was one of my favorite episodes because um, no one really gives students or people a chance to think historically and safely about you know the n-word which one is is one of the most electric and powerful words in the english language it has the greatest range of any word that i can think of on one hand You can hear it used in the most fraternal and even affectionate manner between two people of color. That's my N over there. You know what I mean? And it's like nothing. It's like, it's all love. Like if you're in that environment and you're in that relationship, it really is, it's all love. And the power of that is extraordinary. On the other hand, it could mean I'm going to hang you from a tree. If I could do it, I would do that, which is an extreme. And then it can mean so many things in between. I mean, I've heard kids just say, like if you're in an urban area right now, kids raised in hip hop and they say that, that n-word over there and they are meaning nothing they don't mean brother they mean this guy you know it's a neutral uh unaffected in their mind uh term until they get into a professional environment to realize that it's not neutral and unaffected you know but the real uh, reality of it is that um the n-word is not the problem and this is what i mean about controlling the narrative see What my experience has been is that most white folks are uncomfortable with the legacy of racism because what happened in the 1950s and 60s, what Dr. King's real impact was in my view is that he shamed white America because his moral integrity was so high and his his eloquence was so beautiful. the, the, The power of his example was so great that most people as individuals, when they looked at his life and they listened to him speak, they felt ashamed of their own hatred and their own sentiments about black people. It embarrassed them. And so suddenly you had this shift That was more than the legal shift that occurred. That's the one we usually look at, 64 of Civil Rights Act, 65 Voting Rights Act, 68 Civil Rights Act. We look at the achievements, but we don't look at the psychological shift that happened in this country, which was it's embarrassing to be the ugly, violent, uh, barbaric racist that was exposed by the peaceful marches, okay? So something really scary happened. America didn't stop being racist. It stopped liking being a racist country. And so people started being polite while justifying racist institutions, practices, and policy. And the embodiment of that polite racism and systemic and personal was like Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan could speak eloquently. Ronald Reagan could... um, uh, justify cutting social programs in countries, uh, I mean, in in states all around the country. And those things were having very specific targeted impacts. And he would have secret meetings with his, his cabinet, and they would craft ways not to sound monstrous, but to have the same effect of diminishing the power of the civil rights movement, which was the reason for the rise of the white evangelical movement in the 80s that elected Reagan. And we don't like to think about those things in america i'm saying we sometimes i collectively say we so that i can connect with a white audience because that's usually the audience i'm speaking to right so that they can recognize that their 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 support and their what's happened to them is directly impacting people like me you know and um that politeness makes them very uncomfortable with hearing the n-word right but what black people have done with the n-word over time was to say, you know, that word is a symbol of the fact that you can control my entire identity and do anything you want with my body, and but you can't do anything you want with my mind. And you tra- and, and black folks transform that thing from from the tip of the spear to an affectionate hug, and smile and do it with rhythm. That's why it's so important. That's in in hip hop that put it out there. You know what I mean? Because art is something that's very difficult to control. And the more you press me, the more beautiful my art is going to be. The more powerful my art is going to be. You see what I'm saying? And we look at original hip hop, that early hip hop. That's that is really coming from Black folks. Not corporate. It's not connected to white power. It's not connected to white institutions. That stuff is beautiful, powerful commentary. We, it's the bards. It's, it's the it's the historical. It's the oral historians of our culture and urban Black communities. It's amazing. You know what I mean? It's a self-soothing party music. That's what it was. It's storytelling about what's happening in the hood, and my family, and my mind as a young black man. It's beautiful stuff. You know what I mean? And once, once white institutions got involved with it, and they could make money off the caricatures of black violence, you know, and NWA capitulated. I, I always view, uh, you know, I respect um, what those young men in Compton had to experience as their everyday life, but to get paid. To sell to white kids all over this country the caricature of us that already existed, I I still view it as harmful, ultimately. You know, it shifted the narrative on rap music and hip hop Um, and a lot of black kids that would have been poets that were telling our story, you know, sold like Snoop, like sold... the caricature because he knows that white people will gobble that up because there's already an existing stereotype about our violence and our menacing nature and uh you know you get rich and it's cool for you as an individual but you got to think about the way the police react to that in the hood for everybody who's not making that uh exploitative money off of that you know and uh, uh, then you get you get white people all over the country that feel justified when they see police brutality because they think of black boys just like they think of them in the caricature of gangster rap you know and so i look at white institutional systemic racism in that and i and i and i'm um i blame them for that in exploiting them not knowingly saying we're not going to sign you singing this we're not going to say si- we're not going to sign you talking like this you gotta you gotta change your flavor or you're not getting the record i blame them definitely for that but i also blame blame um to a lesser extent, Black artists who took took the money because um, even though, you know, to me I'm sitting comfortably and it sounds judgmental for me to say that, but um, the impact was so powerful. The the imagery that was sold to white America, especially white suburban America, which is very powerful part of the social and political um, and economic uh, elements of this country. Um, it's hard to erase the imagery when you turn on the TV or when you listen to the songs. And these folks don't have Black people in their circles. They don't know nothing about Black culture and Black communities. And so they can't tell that it's like, you know, white people can get away with that stuff. You know, they can do death metal and heavy metal, and nobody thinks that that's white culture. It is white culture, but nobody thinks that every white person is like that because they interact with so many other white people. But when you're in the a country where the percentage of us is only 13% and most white people are not interacting with black people you can't afford to send out a caricature because that's what they think they know mm. and it's it's deadly it's literally deadly to us you know and it's just the same thing it's not you know my judgment i sometimes i'm a little harsher with my judgment on that because it's it's something in reflection that we figured out that at least i did you know because looking back at what happened with all of all, all of the intelligentsia all these smart black folks leaving the hood um and not staying and buying up the dilapidated building buildings in in those neighborhoods and and increasing the property values and therefore increasing the property tax and therefore improving the schools that they went to you know that's that you know Marcus garvey's collective economics message those those things were not emphasized in the schools that we went to. So we're not thinking that way. We, we, you know, the media and even the messages from the places where we do control, in some cases, our churches, et cetera, really sold the idea that education and living in the suburbs and replicating white life was the marker or the standard of success for black success. And that's not, that's just not our message that we needed to be uh, receiving at the time. But you know, if you if you isolate Dr. King and you focus on a very narrow band of only some of his messaging and then you black out everybody else, you black out the Nation of Islam, you black out the Panthers, you black out the United Negro Improvement Association. That's the Marcus Garvey's movement. You black out the um, the first march on Washington by a Philip Randolph. You black out the uh, uh, the Nicarati, which is an intellectual movement during the New Negro movement in Harlem, where. Uh, Zora Neale Hurston and some of these other folks just just sharp intellect and brilliance you know a heavy critique of what white America was doing and about systemic racism early I'm talking about 1920s 1930s in America like most people just don't know these things and when you block them out Tulsa Oklahoma in the 1920s like you don't recognize that our heritage is extraordinary in this country not just in the past but in this country brilliance economically powerful, philosophically powerful. Um, the guy who came up, you know, the Harlem Renaissance is not even our name for that time period. When we were, when our people were there in Harlem, our ancestors, Caribbean, African-American, Afro-Cuban, it was so many, such diversity, right? When we were there, we called it the new Negro movement. And the new Negro movement, one of the slogans was the new Negro is here and he is not afraid. Mm. i mean you know if you were to say that to most black people today they would not know what you're talking about the harlem renaissance you know the, the difference between saying the harlem renaissance renaissance sounds like painting and dancing and and smiling it's comfortable when i say the new negro movement you mean oh well what, what's the new attitude and it, it's extraordinary if you put put in the new negro movement and google image it today you're going to see marches in new york city of black professional and middle class folks in black neighborhoods saying things like i am a man i am a man you know and then you understand jazz music in a completely different context which was part of it part of it my aunt yelled at me about saying that it was just an argument to white people we can do music too it was that was a part of it but it was a much larger movement i mean it's a preservation and an innovation and a lot of things african but Jazz music was revolutionary music, just like hip hop is revolutionary music. But we don't know our own very immediate history, you know, the very immediate history, like the way that black people even walk that, you know, that that classic bop that black black guys do in a lot of places. All of everything that we did was about a statement that you can't control everything about me. You can't make me do everything you want. So if you walk that way, I'ma walk this way. If you sing that way, I'm going to sing this way. If you if you dress that way, I'ma dress this way. That it, it's been, you know, oh, we have been preserving our identity and our culture in so many different ways and so many powerful ways, but we don't control the story about ourselves. And so we don't have a cohesive narrative to give to our children. You know, and it's 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 a dangerous thing to be without identity and to be without history and for kids to grow up that way i mean the, the 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 um psychological hoops that you grow jump through until you become stabilized in your own mind to deal with the attack on your psychological condition sometimes it destroys kids you know so yeah the n-word is not, to me, the problem. I do at the end, uh, to answer finally answer your question, I put a circle on the board, okay? I put a circle on the board, and this is for my white kids and for the few black kids in the classroom who are often sitting and smiling, rocking back and forth when I'm doing this lesson. You know, and I love that because there's a soothing and a healing that's happening for them, a validation that's happening for them, and a challenge. You know, I always was in the classroom, and and the pressure and the challenge was on me. Anytime you're talking about race, I love spinning that because the reality is that Black people didn't make this thing. We didn't do this, and it's not our job to unmake it. It's white people's job to unmake it, right? But I put a circle on the board, and I write all of the things that are systemic racism in this country. I write all of them. I write police brutality, unequal education. I write banking practices, everything that we've been learning in the course, right? And then I write the N-word in the circle, too. And I put over the circle, I say systemic and institutional racism. That's what's in the circle. You want to add? And they give me everything. They give me history. They have slavery, Jim Crow, Black codes. They start blowing it up, right? And I'm like, yeah, that belongs in a circle. Great. And then I take an eraser and I erase the N-word. And I say, what did I do to rate institutional racism? They go, oh, nothing. And I say, exactly. That, this is a narrative of white comfort. I don't want to hear the ugliness. That's what the N-word represents. But guess what? In black communities, that's love. So <laughs> that's something that's wrong with your community. You see what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. I put it in and it does nothing. I take it out, it does nothing. I says, let's stop talking about censoring the N-word because what they really are doing in many instances is trying to stop black men from psychologically, black women, black boys and girls from psychologically protecting themselves from the humiliation that's associated with that word. So that's what that's what creating a fraternal expression of it does. You know what I mean? It buffers, it says, it's, I'm stopping you from making you think that you can tell me that I'm nobody and I'm nothing. Because I can say I'm, a, I'm somebody who's loved. Using the same word. That's what that's for. So now they want to turn around after having creating all the systems that create the power of the word, come around and tell you you can't say it. That's what that's what that's about. You know what I mean? So I reject it. I reject it and I'm not, you know, I'm not I'm not down for that. And 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 people who go around trying to tell young black boys and girls that um they can treat them like n-words, but they can't say the n-word. I'm like, no. <laughs> you're not going to pull that off as long as I'm around, you're not going to pull that off because the young kids don't really fully understand what they're doing and saying when that happens.
0: Mm-hmm. Folks, if you're just joining us episode 48, the Be More Today show, I'm here with Albert Cook. Social studies teacher at Newport High School for 23 years, historian of, of so many things, elder in his church, and uh, a pillar in his community. And we're just talking about Black history uh, on all on all formats. Um, Albert Cook, I, you know, I, I'm curious on um, what your thoughts are on. You mentioned your students talking about the N word and music, and how that definitely affects our communities, and how it affects the police in terms of how the police interact with our communities as well. There's been a lot of talk about. Police reform, defunding the police. Is it a good thing? Is it a bad thing? What are your quick thoughts on, on the mm-hmm. defund the police movement and if we should be doing it or not, we should be doing it?
2: Well, um, I'm actually serving on the Newport's um, Police Reform Steering Committee, and we're discussing a plan that needs to be submitted to Albany about what's going to happen in our local town concerning the police. And, you know, um, there's a debate to be had. Defund the police is a chant that works well and expresses a sentiment in protest. Um, Divest and invest doesn't chant, doesn't sound as rhythmic and as powerful. Um, Divest and invest is is more like what needs to happen, which is you need to think about um, how to decrease the amount of money that's spent in militarizing police and increase the amount of money that develops um, institutions and practices that support black bodies and black communities. And um, defunding the police is not an effective slogan, in my view, because what it does is it, you have partners, the partners are white people, okay? As black folks, your, your partners are white people because white people hold the power uh, the, the the handle of power in almost every community in the United States. And if you tell those folks, the police, what the police do for those folks is protect their property. They protect their businesses and they protect their homes and they protect um uh their schools. They do all those things for them. Now, that's not the same thing for black people, but that is definitely the reality for white people. So if you say defund the police, those white people immediately are no longer being partners with you because that that's the soul, Those are the soldiers that protect their lifestyle. And so you have to talk about it in ways that people hear you and people understand you and that are willing to work with you. And so, you know, um, I remember the first time I was out in, in a Black Lives Matter march and that shout went out and um, I was standing next to some of my students as it went out. And one of my students turned to me and says, defund them? <laughs> and I was like, uh... Yeah, what I think they mean is demilitarize the police, but that doesn't sound as good rhythmically as we're marching as defund the police, demilitarize the, nope, it doesn't work. So, you know what I mean? It caught on and it went all over the place, but now people have to step up and do what they said they were doing. And we're creating, you know, in the reality, now we're creating a very challenging work for folks because you don't want people to look like they were lying or people that are double crossing folks. That's not really how it works, but, you know, That's just, you know, it's part of the hard work that people have to do. You know, there are a lot of ideas on the committee that I'm on that we're thinking about, but almost all the ideas cost more money. They're talking about social workers and psychologists and all that kind of stuff. It's going to cost more money. So defunding doesn't work if you're going to change, if you're going to radically change how emergency service respond. That means you're hiring people, not decreasing funding. So what you really want to do is stop the militarization, change the disposition, change the culture of policing, you get rid of the folks that think that they're warriors and not protectors, and educate, you know, all those things are going to cost money, you're going to hire people like myself and Sean Thomas to go into communities. You understand what I'm saying. So defund is not really, it's not really the answer. I want to hire folks that are different. I want to put black bodies and black faces. I want to put black professionals and I want to put mental health people. I want to put social workers. I want to put different folks in emergency responses so that police don't have to come with guns and law enforcement all the time to every situation. And I also want the police to be culturally aware of who they are and what historical role they played. I want the police to also be conscious of the fact that they have institutional and personal biases and racism as a natural result of growing up white in america i wanted i want that to be a reality but i don't want to defund i want to i want the protection to be equal and i don't want predatory and prey behavior from police officers mm-hmm.
0: yeah. yeah no that's powerful and i agree with that um i think a lot of people are are on the fence still about all those different thoughts but i do think it is about allocations um and money talks we know that we've seen that happen in all kinds of countries and in every single profession so um we'll see how these next four years go in terms of all those things but i'm glad that you're on the board for that where you are and i think if anyone should be in that area and in your environment it is you i mean you know so much about both sides of the spectrum so being able to bring that to the table i think will be beneficial for your your community for sure mm-hmm. um I don't know if you know. I I um I wrote this book, Be More Today, a 40 Guys to a Better Version of You, and um the whole podcast and the whole movement is about being more. And 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 you, my friend, I have you on the show because you embody that in so many ways. Um you always you always have since I met you years ago. So I asked everybody on the show, and you were number 48 for me. All right. Uh When you hear the phrase "Be More Today," what does the phrase "Be More Today" mean to you?
2: Yeah, and I, I just want to shout shout you out for that, Sean. I mean you've showered me with compliments and I really do appreciate them because I love you and I respect you. And, you know, we, we go back a long way, but you, you know, you're a very impressive young man yourself. Uh, what you've accomplished um, first academically, athletically, uh, spiritually, socially, civically. I mean, I, I see you and I affirm all of that because it's been inspirational. It's been very powerful to watch you, um, as a father, as a husband, everything, you know, you were breaking boundaries in your time that, you know, a lot of us didn't even understand and see. And I look back at them and it's, I'm very proud of you. You know, I'm very proud of you. I'm proud to know you and proud to just know your story, even if I didn't know you. So, um, be more today is exactly the, 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 the trail that you've been blazing in your life. Um, and that I feel that, um, I've been trying to do as well, which is like be your best self in every moment of every day, like find your calling. You know, what are you supposed to do? I found out by accident that I'm I'm a teacher. I'm a teacher every single place that I go. I teach in a pulpit. I teach in my, in my home. I teach on the street. I teach in my classroom. I teach wherever I am. That's where, that's what I've been doing for a long time. And I know that that's what I'm supposed to do. So I do it, do it to lift up other people, you know, Edify people, strengthen people. Don't overlook anybody. Be 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 humble enough to learn, even if you're a teacher from anybody. I learned some of the greatest lessons that I've ever learned from four-year-old children. You know what I mean? So being more is always looking for those opportunities to work in your lane. You know, with your gifts to do good for people that are in your circle and your circle can your circle could be three people your circle could be a couple hundred people your circle could be millions of people but use your gifts to strengthen those folks lift them up and always look for the um, person who's the target don't don't feed the people that don't need to be fed all the time you know Mm -hmm. you know everybody needs to be fed everybody needs to be fed but not everybody needs to be fed all the time some people are fat and they get everything that they want i'm talking metaphorically right now you know what I mean? Uh, feed people that aren't being fed. Fed. Look for those folks because if you strengthen the weak, you strengthen everybody.
0: Powerful. You know? Powerful. I, I appreciate your sentiments. Clearly, you know I, I respect you on bounds. Um, so you, right uh, now, the love I have for you, and I'm glad that we were able to connect on the show today. Um, any final tips you want to share with the audience? I mean, you 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 know so much. I'm always just so impressed about your your depth of knowledge when it comes to history because I don't have that. Um, and I wish I had that. I have that, I guess, in my, in my profession and it's your profession. So I know you have that, but there's also a certain knack to the passion you have behind that. So I had to have you on. That's one of any any tips you want to share with, with listeners about anything black history related, anything that we talked about today or anything that you're trying to do moving forward. I mean, like you said, that, that, uh, school you're you're going to be doing. Uh, after your retirement, that that foundation is going to be super excited. So I'm, I'm 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 happy to hear about that, and we'll have to have you back on the show to talk about that when it actually happens. Sure. But uh, any thoughts you want to share with the audience as we close?
2: Yeah, last thoughts would be, um, it, it, for for the, for black folk in the audience specifically, I think number one, we need to read our um, stories in our voices find Black authors, especially those who went through the mid-20th century um, and early 20th century struggle. There's a lot of literature out there. W.E.B. Du Bois is amazing. Um, uh, Zornio Hurston is amazing. Um, I'm talking about folks that aren't as commonly known. Um, the uh, What's his name? I'm Not Your Negro. Uh, come on, what's his name? It's not Paul Lawrence Dunbar, even though Paul Lawrence Dunbar is amazing. Claude McKay is amazing. Um, I'm not your Negro. He was a gay black writer. James Baldwin. Amazing. Like Tanahazy Hazy Coates, that, the, the author that writes now, he feels to me, he feels to me like a James Baldwin. He's got like, this emotional, fiery top layer and then this deep intellectual second layer. And we just need to read our own voices and understand where we came from recently. Our recent history, understand our recent history. Read read um, Marcus Garvey's stuff. And if you don't want to read it, listen to his speeches and read the transcripts on YouTube. I mean, get acquainted to where, from with where we come from. And then um, also the last thing is that don't think of civil rights as simply political and social rights. I think one of the other traps that we've fallen into is that we focus far too much on people respecting us Um, Socially, we want to be respected. But the thing is that respect comes after you do things that are respectable. And the economics of civil rights is the key for us. And we need to understand our collective economic power and operate uh, intentionally around those things. Because Political power all law all politics is built on protecting economic investments that's been the way of the United States at least since its colonization you have property and power economic power and then you make laws to protect it that's what white people have been doing black people need to understand those principles and we need to understand that success and, you know we bind clues and cars, etc., is not necessarily a marker of success because you can't give them to anybody else and they degrade in value. But you buy buildings and refurbish them while you walk around in jeans and a t-shirt and sneakers, but you own the building that you're walking next to. And then you have a business that comes out of there and then you can hand that down to your children and they don't ever have to sell it. And then the ideas and the power and the economics that come out of that and you start buying up the blocks that you lived on, all those dilapidated buildings that the government is holding and banks are holding and they want to get rid. Those are the kinds of things economically that we need to think about as black folks and building equity and power. And then out of that, we when, when, when the, when the uh, people that have elected office have to have meetings talking about what are they going to do in this block, guess who they have to invite? Because you own the block. Now you're sitting down and suddenly you have a voice that's political. And after you do that, guess what happens? Socially, people look at you and they realize, oh, that's your name and your building. And the respect that you were seeking this whole time, that's where it comes from. Mm. You know what I mean. So mm. that's my advice. We need to think differently.
0: Mm. Albert Cook, where can people follow you, uh, your journey, your, your your teachings? Where can they follow
2: you? Sure, I'm on Facebook with my full name, Albert B. Cook II. You can search me there and friend request it. Um, I'm thinking about making a new Facebook page just for this kind of stuff where I can interact with folks on this level, not just my personal page. Um, I'm on Instagram, but I'm not that much. Same name, AB Cook II. Um, so yeah, radiokingston.org has the 10 uh, episode series under Jimmy Buff loves you. Uh, He's the host of the show. And, um, those would be great if you could check them out. I'd love, I'd love to have your feedback. You can check them out on my Facebook page. They're linked throughout it. Um, but you could also just go straight to the
0: radio, uh, website. Yep, and I'll add the radio website to the, the show notes for sure. I heard most of them folks, and they are dynamic and inspirational and phenomenal. So please check them out as well. Albert Cook, thank you so much for joining me on this show today. Uh, Black History Month is now amazing because of you. And um, <laughs> I appreciate, again, all your work and support and, and your words of encouragement. You've always been that pillar for me. So thank you so much for making the time to be on this show. It's
2: my pleasure. Thanks for reaching out, Sean.
0: No problem. Folks, don't forget that quotation from today. Maya Angelou said, won't it be wonderful when Black history, Native American history, and Jewish history, and all US history is taught from one book, just US history. Albert Hook is doing that. He's showing his students how to uh, uh, really see through the text and he's adding to the, the narrative, he's adding to the literature and he's making a new history, um, new history for these, these people to know. And I think that, like he said, get out there, read these books. Um, I'm reading Obama's book right now for the second time and, and just read the books. The books are out there, audio books, whatever you have to do. They're on YouTube, they're everywhere. Know your history, continue to make sure that you can control the narrative that's going on in this, in this country and uh, just stay educated. As we conclude Black History Month uh, very, very soon, just continue to stay inspired and thank you so much for joining us on this show today be more today again we're everywhere be more today.com for the book the music the podcast um if you want to be a bmt supporter send me an email be more today that's number two day at gmail.com and you can follow us on all of our socials instagram youtube you know what's going on you know how we do the words for life podcast always, is always still coming on every single wednesday so check that out as well And folks, happy Black History Month. Stay proud, stay black, and stay whatever you are. And as you always say, have a good day. Have a good night. Have a great life. And continue to take yourself to greatness to be the best version of you. Peace.